Before we start this podcast, a quick note that this episode contains discussion about forensic psychology and sensitive topics, including child maltreatment. Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. This is the podcast which interviews our academic staff and students to find out more about their work and the courses they're involved with. My guest this week is Dr. Hannah Cassidy, Senior Lecturer in Forensic Psychology at the School of Applied Social Science. And Hannah's research mainly focuses on investigative interviewing, child maltreatment and deception. It's a really interesting subject and really looking forward to getting stuck into this one. So thanks for coming on, Hannah. First off, Let's get to know a little bit about you. What's your background and, and how have you arrived at this point? Um, well, I think my interest in psychology generally came from an interest in mental health when I was younger. Um, I went to college and I thought I was going to become a linguist who was going to do international relations and maybe work in business. And then I did AS business for business studies for about a year. Um, and I chose psychology because it was something that interested me because of mental health. And after a year of business, I decided that I hated it and I never wanted to be in a profession whose sole purpose was to make money. Um, and I really enjoyed psychology. I had a fantastic psychology teacher when I was at college. She was absolutely crazy um, and just so passionate about psychology and the diversity and you know, how it could be applied in so many different ways. And kind of from that moment, I kind of put all focus onto psychology. Mm. Um, but I, I really love language and, and I kind of encountered a crossroads where I applied to do psychology and French at university. And there weren't that many universities back then that offered it as a sort of joint honours programme. So I was quite limited in my options. Um, but quite fortunately, I have family who live in Belgium and um, the idea was proposed, well, why don't I just learn psychology in French? Um, so I kind of combined my love of language and my love of psychology. Uh, and I went to do psychology for three years um, in Belgium. Um, and during that time, I used to come back and I used to work um, in a mental, an adult mental health unit um, in the South, in Hampshire. Um, and I used to work with the occupational therapy team and I used to do lots of activities with our patients, with our inpatients. Um, and although I absolutely love the work and I, I think that you'll never have two days that are the same, I also found that sometimes it was hard to manage the emotional side of it. Um, and that's when I kind of started to think about how I was actually getting a bit more interested perhaps in forensic psychology and um, you know, watching all these kind of documentaries, these true crime uh, films that came out, these adaptations. Um, and I was really kind of intrigued by the idea that people who are not that different from us can do these kind of unthinkable things. Mm. Um, and so I came back and I did my master's in forensic psychology at the University of Portsmouth. And that ultimately led to my PhD, which is where I kind of decided to focus more on helping children who are caught up in the legal system as perhaps victims and witnesses um, and helping to elicit best evidence from them to allow them to tell their sort of story. Um, and that's when I started to get interested in sort of more of the deception area of, of child interviewing, as it were. 
Well, we're going to talk about that in, in just a moment. Can you tell us about the, the role that you have at the university and uh, the, the, the courses that you teach on? Yeah, so I've been at the University of Brighton since 2017. So it will be my third year here, or beginning of my fourth year in September. Um, I was originally taken on to become part of the very small, there were only two of us to begin with, forensic psychology team. Uh, in the School of Applied Social Sciences. So I was specifically here to teach forensic psychology. But uh, since joining the team, I also teach on research methods, social psychology. Um, and I've also created my own module as well, which is for second year students, which is about children or child psychology uh, in the educational health and uh, forensic context. So I've also been able to bring my sort of own expertise to create um, a module that will help students who really want to perhaps work in those one of those three domains later on and after leaving us. Um, we'll come back to the courses that you teach on at the university a little bit later. I'm quite interested to talk about some of your research areas then, as you just sort of touched on. Why the focus on, on children um, for you? What was the, what was the interest? Well, when I was little, I wanted to be a primary school teacher. Um, and I think now I've decided that I still like teaching. So I'll teach the adults, but I'll teach them about children. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been intrigued about the combination of developmental psychology and forensic psychology sort of together, because there aren't that many people around the world who connect those two areas of, of psychology, perhaps, or at least, um, there's not as many as other other bridges between uh, disciplines within psychology. Um, and I just felt when I was doing my master's in forensic psychology that victims, generally speaking, weren't talked about as much in, in the course content. And so I was kind of interested about victimization as well. And I was really interested in the child aspect of it because it just is so complex when you do research with adults, usually you just assume that they have all these sort of, that, you know, they fully developed people. But when you work with children and when you're trying to understand children, you have to break it down and really think about what parts of their development are still ongoing and how that is contributing to their behavior or their thoughts. So I just find it really intriguing to think about kids because there's perhaps more of an air of plasticity there um, with children. Not saying that adults can't change, because of course they can, but with children, I just find it really intriguing to think about how their development plays into their, their behavior. And, and you've focused before on detecting children's um, false allegations and false denials, essentially a child's ability to lie or, or not to tell the truth. Uh, so why, why that area in particular? Because I guess it kind of varies depending on the, the age of the child about sort of their ability to be able to do that. Sometimes they'll look at it and think they're very clever, but you can see right through it depending on their age. Yeah, I mean, children's ability to lie um, increases with age because you know their verbal skills increase with age their understanding of how to lie um, and how to monitor their lies you know that increases with age um, there is some research done with very young children like two or three years old where they'll commit a transgression something really small like uh, eating sweets when they weren't supposed to 
and the evidence is still there on the table and they'll still try to lie even though it's very obvious <laughs> but this is the thing we're very young kids it's like i didn't eat the cookie kind of thing and obviously most of the lies that children tell and that we tell as adults are you know these um they're not very hurtful lies they're some people call them white lies some people call them polite lies they're not very harmful necessarily um so i was kind of interested in these kind of greater greater significance kind of lies so when you're lying in a forensic context of course there's lots of different motivations to tell false allegations or false denials um and it's just important that the child knows that they can tell the truth or we try and create a situation in which they feel more comfortable to tell the truth it doesn't always happen obviously but i think it's important to try and aim for that that end goal yeah i mean as a as a radio journalist i've interviewed children before and it isn't easy at the best of times when you're trying to get something quite sort of fluffy out of them really but interviewing them on on very serious topics such as you know police interviews um that's quite a skill I imagine to get the truth out of a child. How do you how do you learn that? Yeah, so it's a really uh, difficult skill to interview. Just generally speaking, just trying to elicit information from an eyewitness is difficult because first of all, you need their cooperation, and if they're not wishing to cooperate, then you know you could encounter barriers there. So police uh, officers firstly have to be trained to interview elicit information generally speaking and then they can specialize if they want in interviewing children interviewing younger children as well and interviewing children with intellectual disabilities but it really has to be a combination of them learning um sort of the evidence-based techniques which also come from like the research and psychological research and combining that with practice and getting feedback so it has to be really kind of a cyclical process um, and as you get more experienced, of course, as you encounter, because every child is different and every child has different needs. So as you encounter more children, you're probably going to get better because you are learning to adapt and tailor your interviewing to kids of different ages or different backgrounds, for example, or about different types of crime. But yeah, it's definitely incredibly difficult to necessarily do the right thing all the time. Mm. Um, and all we can try and do is train people as best we can and, and ask them to reflect on their practice. Mm. Um, but I try and work really closely with police officers when I do my research, because obviously I'm, I've never been in that position before. I've never sat in front of a child and tried to interview them. I've watched real life interviews with, um, with children about cases of maltreatment. Um, but it's not the same as actually sitting in that chair and asking that child. So I think it's really important as a researcher to really connect with the practitioners uh, and really understand their point of view. It has to be um, a really collaborative process because otherwise the research that we do might never see the light of day in practice because it doesn't sit well in the context. So there has to be a lot of communication, I think, mm. between us and, and the interviewers to know what is best for the child in the legal context because that's the other thing they know a lot more about what you can and can't do mm. in those situations yeah absolutely and some of these in the worst case scenario some of these issues are so serious and um, you know you might be talking about abuse and you're occasionally asking a child to reveal something reveal the truth um about something that may be their you know their principal caregiver 
has has done to them or something that they've experienced and so in those situations that's that's must be when it's at its hardest right yeah i mean um there's a lot of research that talks about barriers to disclosure both that children report and that um, police officers have observed from kids and we do know that um it's most likely going to be perpetrated by another family member and so that creates all sorts of issues because um there can sometimes be a sense of loyalty towards people that you know are your family as well um there's a they call it sometimes filial dependency where you know you're within that family that is your support system you know what happens if you leave that family um they worry about breaking up the family so yeah there's an awful lot of serious thoughts going through which could be a quite a young child's mind um, so obviously sometimes it's going to be really hard and sometimes a child might not feel like they can disclose what has happened um, for their own reasons. And I think we just need to understand more about that decision-making process. We know a lot about these barriers, but perhaps um, we need to continue to think more about the best ways to help the child in those situations because they obviously are taking a lot trying to make this decision about whether they should tell somebody uh, or tell a police officer who is probably someone they've never met before or not. Mm. Uh, I, I guess it kind of depends on the age of the child again, we're coming back to uh, earlier on. I mean, if you've got a, a younger child, it's not necessarily going to be easier to get the information out of them. And it, it, in fact, maybe the older that you are, the more emotional intelligence you have. And I guess that's probably more the way to get to um, uh, maybe an, ad an, an adolescent, an ad adolescent instead to, you know, you kind of appeal to the seriousness of the of the nature, but whereas for a child that's younger, it, it, you know, it's all about their parents. It's a potentially it's a, a difficult thing to disclose if information about them. Yeah, with young children, it's usually um, their verbal capability to explain what's happened, and it also is they perhaps don't. Um, it's interesting because when you watch these interviews with young children, they're really um, blunt. They're very frank. And they just kind of say it how it is. And that can be quite, um, they don't necessarily always connect with the emotional side of it because perhaps they don't understand the gravity of it. Not in all cases, of course, but you can, they're very matter of fact about perhaps what has happened. Um, we, in the UK, we have what's called um, intermediaries, which are people who are either specialized in speech therapy or they're developmental psychologists. And um, what they can do is assessments with the child beforehand and they can kind of see what is the best way to help this child communicate. And sometimes that can be verbally by just changing the questions. So making sure the question doesn't have too many components in it so that the child doesn't feel overwhelmed. Um, but it can also be about facilitating nonverbal communication. So if the child wants to draw, for example, and can you know draw something and then perhaps explain the drawing, and that can also be helpful. Um, with older, like adolescents, for example, um, sometimes you will actually find that they might be more reluctant to disclose as well, or to really talk about it in detail. Or this is at least what police officers have told me: is that they understand the gravity of what has happened, and in fact, because of the emotional connection they find that the barriers are more sort of with regards to shame uh, and guilt 
so they the the emotional connection actually creates these barriers that they feel embarrassed about being part of something and so that prevents them from wanting to talk about it so sometimes they might be able to disclose that something happened but they might not feel comfortable to go into any length of detail about what exactly happened which is difficult because obviously to pr prosecute a case you need to have those details so it's a really tricky situation um and again so it's really important as a researcher to try and understand that situation as much as possible by talking to the police officers who have to deal with that who have to manage those situations yeah um i've read an article uh, i think you contributed towards for uh tess um i think it was from there anyway about you um is the argument saying that you encourage schools to teach children um basically to lie as a social lubricant and um, can you tell us what you mean by that i mean i'm not necessarily saying we should encourage students to um <laughs> sorry i'm not necessarily saying we should encourage children to lie but a lot of the time if we reflect on the lies we tell on a daily basis they are these small lies that we tell to maintain our social relationships right you know, it's the horrible Christmas jumper you get from grandma that you know that if you said what you truly felt about it, that would really hurt her feelings. So it doesn't really cost you that much just to say, oh, that's really nice. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And just tell a very small lie uh, because it maintains that relationship with somebody. I mean, a lot of the time it's just about information management, really when somebody asks you how you are on a daily basis most of the time and that this might just be a, one of those very british problems we go i'm fine how are you but we're not necessarily fine it's kind of we just you know that social protocol no you don't want to like you'll, you'll know from your relationship with that person whether they want a long winded answer to how you're actually feeling today or they just want to hear i'm fine you ask it in return and then you get on to talking about what you want to talk about so when I say about not necessarily encouraging lying, as it were, but we can't say that lies are wrong, like categorically lies are wrong, because some types of lies are considered to be more socially acceptable. Uh, and if we went around all day long telling the truth, then we probably wouldn't have as many friends by the end of the day. Um, and, and so it's important for children, perhaps not when they're really young, but when um, their moral development enables them to understand that there are some gray areas in life where there isn't necessarily a right or wrong, but it's how you think about it and how you reason it, then they can start to understand that perhaps lying kind of may come under that bracket that, you know, there are these gray areas where it's okay to tell a little fib, for example. So then you've got a difficult situation, I guess, with children about um, telling a difference between um, that kind of lie and then um, keeping secrets I guess as well yeah I was having a conversation with um, one of my uh, research uh, collaborators in Canada about this and um, the other week and we were talking about how hard it is to keep secrets and I don't have any children of my own but she was explaining that with her son um, she's taught him from a very young age to not keep any secrets okay. um, and now so just tell, you tell me everything. But now that he's getting a little bit older and perhaps, you know, um, his grandma wants to keep a little secret for a surprise present for her birthday or something, 
then okay that's okay think the person's going to like it well, you're going to tell the secret at some point it's only going to be kept for a very short period of time and then you know something like that you can explain it but it is really hard and that's why any sort of, sort of formal teaching is probably going to be very difficult because these are the kind of nuances that we learn through socializing over the course of our lives and that's where you see cultural differences perhaps in social acceptability of lies and and keeping secrets but yeah secrets are really interesting because they technically are a type of lie because you're withholding information from somebody which is lying but um we don't think of them as being as bad as lies right it's okay to keep a secret because when we think about secrets and the research with kids has shown this that children understand that secrets are personal information that we decide if we want to share with other people so they're ours and we decide if we want to share them and we usually share them to build friendships with people and develop relationships with people so again there's like a social side to it um so they're really kind of complex uh, secrets but they're really interesting because not taking this full circle back but to go back to kind of child maltreatment in a lot of cases the perpetrator might tell the child to keep it a secret right. and this is where we this is where it becomes really difficult to start unpicking everything um but yeah really hard to formally teach children um about when to tell it when it's okay to keep a secret when it's okay to tell a lie perhaps or a little fib definitely very very hard yeah and um Moving on from um, children a little bit, and you said about earlier on about, you know, you watch these true crime programs or uh, things on TV and films, and that kind of ends up sort of feeding an ambition to maybe move into this area a little bit. But I, I, I'm interested to talk about investigative interviewing in general, because we've all watched those films and um, the TV programs, the different tactics, the good cop, bad cop. Uh, and there's a line that never needs to be crossed. I mean, what, in your opinion, from the research that you've seen, because you've seen people be interviewed, you know, to try and get this, elicit this information from someone. Um, when you see it in practice, what do you seem to, to look at as the best approach? I mean, there is really clear guidance um, in UK interviewing protocol. We have what's called PEACE, which very clearly outlines how you should be interviewing people. And one of the main core constructs of how we interview people is the questions that we ask them. So we want to ask open questions. We want to try not to taint the information that's being elicited as much as possible. So you want to try as much as possible to open with, um, we call them TED questions. Tell me, explain to me, describe to me. Um, then you might ask what's all close specific questions, which are more the five W's, who, what, when, why, where, these sorts of things. And then at the very least, if you really have to, and this sometimes you have to do with young children, for example, is ask some questions where they might perhaps might be more closed and you have to ask them, okay, well, was it this, this or something else, for example. And it's so interesting when I watch sometimes particularly dramatized programs like police interviewing like um, Luther, for example, and um, I'll be listening to the questions that they ask. And Luther was pretty good. And then, and then he kind of goes downhill a little bit. <laughs> it's very frustrating sometimes. <laughs> but it is hard because when you're faced with somebody who um, 
might not be able to answer those open questions because the thing with open questions if someone says to you okay well tell me everything that happens your understanding of what everything is is very different to the next person and you have no idea as an eyewitness exactly all the information that's required to prosecute a case or further an investigative lead so that's where the police officer then has to come in and try and help you to understand the information that needs to be elicited without tainting what you're saying um but that's hard because you know when you're sat in front of a person and the worst people for it apologies but the worst people are journalists oh, oh my gosh i i absolutely love watching um stacy dooley documentaries um but she is just so bad at our questions <laughs> but it's because there's a different purpose right with journalism sometimes there is specific information that you want to get out of people so you might ask them a specific question so it's perhaps a slightly different aim but yeah sometimes when i i watch journalists interview people it really frustrates me because <laughs> it's such bad questioning yeah we've seen a lot of it over the last few months with these uh coronavirus briefings as well and i think <laughs> i think a lot of people tend to get quite frustrated about that level of questioning um what about the programs there that, that do do it quite well do you see because you often see like you say with luther you'll see things go downhill it seems to be a good approach at one point and then yeah you've got sort of too often you go into the bent cock sort of category but do you see like some programs do it quite well actually i, I don't know if you saw was it last year the netflix program criminal that was that was that was pretty intense one hour episodes of i recommend it it's good it's it's basically just three episodes one hour of one case and they're in an interview room and that is it um it's re I, re I recommend it it's probably a bit of a busman's holiday for you but it's uh it's it's, it's decent stuff do programs and films tend to get it right sometimes um <laughs> i mean <laughs> They might start out well, you know, they might ask a really open question to begin with and then it just goes, just, oh, just a train crash, really. Mm. I end up, the true crime stuff that I watch on Netflix is generally American stuff. So I um, watch confession tapes, for example, and I've watched both seasons of Making a Murderer, which most people have watched probably by now, but particularly the confession tapes is so frustrating. Um, because uh, part of my teaching on forensic psychology, we talk about eliciting false confessions from people and just the questions that they ask. It just, sometimes I have to truly turn the TV off because I get so angry at the fact that this is real life. This was people's lives. Um, and it, yeah, it just makes me so frustrated that I have to kind of go away and pull down and watch something innocuous for a little while. You saw that you said um, some of your teaching then as well with your students and encourage them to look at it with a bit more of a critical eye. Yes. I mean, in the applied of, the School of Applied Social Sciences, that's what we're all about, being really critical. You know, okay, here's the information. Can I trust that information? Where's that information come from? That's what we're all, I mean, I think across all of our courses, we're always encouraging our students to question the information, the knowledge, their understanding of things. It's a really important skill to have, I think, particularly in the world that we live in, where there's information flying all over the place and fake news or whatever. You know, we have to have that skill of being a little bit more critical because otherwise you don't know who to believe and there's so much, yeah, wrong information out there. 
um, you can easily get lost. Um, but yeah, so it's really important to teach the students to be critical. One of the lectures that I give is on offender profiling. So that's been greatly covered in obviously loads of films, like the whole Hannibal series. I mean, Sherlock is technically about offender profiling. Uh, we call them behavioral investigative advisors in the UK. We don't call them offender profilers. That's more of an American term. Um, but it's so badly portrayed because it's always portrayed as being flawless almost being this kind of amazing tool like Sherlock comes in and he reads the scene and suddenly he knows exactly who did what and where they are now and of course that's not true uh, of real life and the research around offender profiling is really kind of conflicting about whether it is effective or not so that's one of the really key lectures I give is trying to get them to think really critically about something like profiling which is portrayed in the media to be fantastic but doesn't exactly work like that in real life um, so it, it's not just false confessions I mean we do talk about that as well but there's lots of different areas of forensic psychology that get misconstrued I suppose I guess it must mean you can't enjoy a lot of these things sometimes <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> get and go oh he's amazing she's done a great job that's incredible they're so clever uh, but you're looking at it and saying, this is rubbish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that probably does happen sometimes. Yeah. I have to kind of like, I remember, and this is not really related to forensic psychology, I suppose, but just psychology in general. I remember the first time I watched Frozen and I watched it with two of my um, psychology colleagues and we just destroyed it and just like went over the top on her analyzing and really breaking down frozen from like a psychological standpoint and it really did uh, impair my enjoyment of that film i don't think i'll watch frozen too i don't know <laughs> idea i don't think i started this podcast thinking we were going to go into frozen at some point um <laughs> uh, coming back to your teaching at the university um how would you um, how do you sort of describe the way that you do teach your students? What's your sort of style? How do you like to incorporate things in your teaching? Um, I like to be really passionate when I teach, mainly because I don't see why a student would be passionate about what I'm teaching unless I show them. You know, I start I kick it off. You know, I like to tell, like, really be into what I'm talking about, mm, and, tone, and hopefully. Yeah, well, hopefully my excitement will be kind of contagious and they'll get excited about it. We kind of like enjoy it together, particularly when you're talking about something like forensic psychology, which is quite macabre sometimes. I'm not saying we joke about some of the stuff because it's really serious, but, you know, there's a way that we kind of phrase it, the way we kind of talk about it. Yes, this is kind of weird to be really interested in serial killers, but we are interested in serial killers. We'll acknowledge that. And um, so I like to be really passionate. And I also like to be really interactive. So as I said, um, forensic psychology has like hundred students on it. We have a hundred students in a lecture hall. Sometimes, you know, it can be really hard to keep track of, you know, are they following what I'm teaching? So I like to use things like Kahoot, which was originally used for um, primary school kids. And it's kind of a, a quiz where there's a time limit and you have to, it's a bit like um, who wants to be a millionaire, you know, four answers, and you have to answer as quickly as possible. And I do this with third year students and they're all there on their phones like this. They really get into it. And it's a great way for me to test that they 
understood what I'm talking to them about, uh, for them to check that they've understood it. And if, for example, I see that not many people got that question right, I can then go back over it and just make sure we're all on the same page before we move forwards. So I think, yeah, passion, interactivity is great. Um, yeah, just energy, mm. like to bring kind of energy mm. to, to my lectures, which makes it tiring sometimes, but <laughs> yeah, I think but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so finally then, how would, you, how would you sell it? How would you say to students, like, why should you come to the University of Brighton? Why should you study, with, uh, especially at the School of Applied Social Science? I think Brighton is like an incredible community. I love the community spirit of Brighton. I mean, I still live in Portsmouth and I will travel um, there and back. It takes me about perhaps four hours on the train every day. And that says a lot that I've been doing that for, for three years because I just love the atmosphere when I, when I get to campus. Um, and particularly in the School of Applied Social Science, I mean, it was built on wanting to counteract injustices, social injustices in the world. So everyone is really passionate. And I think it's that applied nature at Brighton within our school, which is, you know, something that you don't get everywhere. Um, they're always thinking about, okay, well, we don't just want to find these things out because I mean, we're all researchers as well as being lecturers. We don't just want to find these things out. We actually want to take this knowledge and, and apply it to an actual problem that's, that's happening in the world and injustice perhaps that's happening in the world and, and make a difference and then tell our students and inspire our students to do that too. Um, definitely within the psychology team, we are always thinking about how we apply our research to our lectures, obviously, to engage our students, but then also thinking about how we can help. And we've got, you know, I obviously work it more in sort of forensic context, but we have people who work within mental health, for example. Um, so it, it's really kind of, as I said from the beginning, you know, I wanted to have, you know, when people choose to do psychology, they always say, it's because I want to make a difference in the world. And I really feel like that is embodied at the University of Brighton and particularly in our school and within our psychology team. But it's genuinely just a lot of people who want to make a difference and who want to inspire more people, the students, to make a difference as well when, when they leave us. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love it at the University of Brighton. And I think it's just the spirit, yeah. Um, yeah. community spirit. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Um, that we we end each podcast with some questions away from your work. So a quick fire round of questions. Um, same in every podcast. So we'll start with what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, be more adventurous, perhaps. Try new things. Mm -hmm. I feel like I tried to. I played it safe a lot when I was younger, with choosing kind of maybe different subject areas and stuff. I wish I'd challenged myself a little bit more okay. uh, and tried out new things so I knew whether I liked them or not. Mm. Um, if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, uh, what would it be? You don't necessarily have to have the skill set to do it, but what would it be? Um, I'm actually really interested in midwifery. Mm. <laughs> it's very different right, okay. to what I'm writing now. It's very different, but I've... kind of, it's not a massive surprise. No? Yeah, because obviously I'm interested in kids. So it would probably be midwifery or, or primary school teaching. But I, yeah, I, I really um, I really admire 
you know, people working within the NHS, like nurses, and I, I particularly admire midwives because they bring people into the world. And I think, wow, mm. that would be a really cool job to have. Yeah. Um, so you, you commute um, from Portsmouth each day, but can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? Uh, I think my favourite place in Sussex is Lewis. I mean, it's really hilly, mm. which is a downside, but it's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, a really yeah. beautiful place. Yeah, really lovely. Um, if you could give visitors to Brighton any area, then a tip of, of something to do for a weekend, um, what would that be? I mean, you have to go to the pier and um, spend some coppers on some of the machines and get some really silly little toys that mean nothing, but somehow they mean something once you've won them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I love spending time at Brighton Pier and, of course, along the beach. Um, it's really great in Brighton that you have so many bars and restaurants along your your beach because here in Portsmouth, they're all set back mm. and we don't really have much going on along our uh, seafront. So that's a really great feature of, of Brighton. Yeah. Um, tell us something interesting about you, which a lot of people may not know. Oh, I would say, I mean, I've already kind of disclosed it, is that because I did my um, undergraduate degree in, in Belgium, I can I can mm. actually speak French semi-fluently now. It's been a it's been a moment. I'm actually trying to teach myself Swedish at the moment. Okay. Um, I've been doing it for 182 days on Duolingo. It's my lockdown. Why Swedish? Because uh, uh, I do a lot of research with my collaborators in Sweden. Okay. Um, and Swedish police officers um, don't usually speak. Uh, English as well as perhaps some of the other Scandinavian countries. So if I want to conduct more research with Swedish police officers, it would be great if I could speak Swedish to them. <laughs> That's interesting. When, when you when you went to Belgium just very quickly and you went to study there, then did, how good was your French at that point? Well, I actually took a, well before I started university. I had a year um, where I did French courses during the day in Belgium with other um, expats. Hmm. from all different places but I did French to A level um, and got an A so I wasn't too bad but it's different because you can learn French in college but it's not the same as having to speak it every day hmm. um, so I kind of um, yeah and I, I also did woofing so before I started university I went to the south of France for two weeks on a donkey farm in the middle of nowhere where they only spoke French <laughs> and I helped out on the donkey farm for two weeks um, and so I got pretty good at French mm, yeah. <laughs> by the time I, I, I'd left there. Yeah. It's all about confidence with language because yeah. you can know how to say stuff. It's always that when you try and then they go, what? At you and you're like, oh, or they speak to you in English. That's quite frustrating. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot, it was deep learning of going into learning in French all time, full time. It gives you a massive headache to listen to another language. Mm. all the time yeah but, but it's worth it mm. yeah they always say throw yourself into it don't they that's the best way of of learning the language um finally if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party they could be past or present who would they be and why um i can definitely think of two people mm -hmm. so i i would love to have um dinner with the queen um <laughs> Just because I think she's a really interesting person. Um, so I'd love to meet the Queen. Um, there's another Queen, actually, that I would really like to have dinner with, which is RuPaul Charles. <laughs> so, um, very famous drag queen. 
massive star of the world. Uh, I'm a massive fan of RuPaul's Drag Race. I think I've watched the American seasons like four times, all of them through. Right. So um, I, I'd be really, really excited to have have dinner with him or her, whether he comes as himself or as his drag alter ego. Um, who else? Uh, I quite like Michael Palin. Mm. I was thinking David Attenborough, but I actually really enjoy Michael Palin's like travel documentaries as well. Yeah. Um, I think he's had a really interesting life. Um, and I think he's probably a really fine man. So I'd be really intrigued to, to listen to his stories. Mm. That'd be so quite, quite a weird mixture of people. Yeah, but I mean, that's quite a dinner party. Yeah, I'd like to be a fly on the wall on that one, I think. That'd be, that'd be decent. Um, look, Hannah, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. You're, you're more than welcome. Uh, and that's it. That's it for t- this week's podcast. Um, if you like to subscribe, leave reviews, you can do through Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening.